For these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set, a door of the, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into it to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and, the, and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the, all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the, waters, when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on, the day, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh that died, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. 
Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Our Lord, as we examine this passage of of Scripture this morning, as we think of of the deluge that you sent upon the earth, Lord, so many of us have have presuppositions that that come from from our culture, come from from what we have been taught um, in the world and and what we have have believed by our own own Um, self-righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see what you would teach us this morning by your spirit in these passages. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see uh, the the truth of of your preserving grace on your chosen vessel, Noah. And Lord, help us to see your preserving grace on us who have been preserved through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As we look at the world around us, especially with the news that we've seen over the last week, it's, it's easy to get dragged down, isn't it? As we look at the, the decay of morals and the breakdown of the family, the, the wars, the injustice, the slaughter of the unborn and the increased persecution of Christians, it, it's, it's easy for these things to happen and, and we, we feel a, a host of, of negative emotions. Fear, anxiety, depression, despair, rage, hopelessness, even apathy and escapism. These are our natural responses to what is happening around us in the world. Well, I wonder if if Noah was tempted to feel any of those emotional responses. We don't know what was going on in Noah's mind precisely, but we, we get a glimpse into his heart. Noah lived in a world that was far more corrupt than ours. And his response helps us to see our responsibility. We can, we can learn a lot from, from Noah's experience. But friends, Noah is not the hero of this story. God is. We can learn a lot from, from Noah's experience, but, but especially in the way that God deals with Noah. This story is, is about how God righteously judges the world but graciously provides deliverance, deliverance for his chosen people through his chosen man. So far in Genesis, we've seen about how how life after the fall reveals God's blessing despite human sin. Though God must and will punish, he demonstrates remarkable forbearance with his chosen people, the line of promise. The two peoples that, that we've been learning about, the, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, rose up alongside one another. But when the lines get crossed, when they began to intermarry, sin spread exponentially, earning God's righteous retribution. Genesis 6-9, as you'll notice, is the beginning of a new Toledot, the third Toledot in the book of Genesis, the Toledot of Noah. It continues to the end of chapter 9 and and relays the the narrative of the flood and and of, of Noah's progeny. 
And again, we're going to see that this theme of the line of promise being threatened by human sinfulness, but preserved by God's grace. So this Toledot amplifies the theme in both the flood narrative from, from 6.9 to 9.17 and even that of Noah's drunkenness in 9.20 to 27. Last week, we, we saw God's faithfulness through his response to Noah in the midst of a consuming and, and all-encompassing wickedness on the face of the earth. We discussed how God's assessment of Noah that, that we, we saw was of grace. God responded to Noah with grace. We saw how the grace of God is just as sweeping as his justice. We'll see this again in the deliverance of Noah. We'll see how God's glorious grace in the midst of his glorious justice. We'll see how God judges the world but provides deliverance for his chosen people. We'll see how the flood narrative intentionally reflects back to, to the creation account and looks ahead to Moses and beyond. There's essentially three sections in the first half of, of the flood narrative from, from Genesis 6, 9 to the end of chapter 7 as the, the waters rise. And each of them shows a stark contrast. We'll see Noah's character versus the earth's corruption. We'll see the Lord's condemnation versus the Noahic covenant. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll see the Lord's call versus the flood's catastrophe. So again, we're going to look at, at the first two sections this morning, and, and each of them marks a sharp contrast between what God is doing for his, for his elect people, the, the people that he has chosen as recipients of his grace, this, this godly line, this line of promise, versus the line of rejection of that promise. So first of all, Noah's character versus the earth's corruption. You'll see this in, in Genesis 6, 9 through 12. We've seen Noah's name twice already in, in 532, where he's included as the last member of the genealogy of Seth, the line of promise. And, and then we see him again in 6, 8, with, where we see the Lord's favor upon him. Again, last week we saw the, the focus, how the focus was on the, the wickedness of the world. And the, the final statement about Noah was meant to be a, a stark contrast. But now as we move into the, the Toledot, the story of the generations of, of Noah, here we see that the focus is on Noah. And so Noah really provides a bridge between the, the pre-flood and the post-flood world. And Noah, even more, far more importantly, provides a, a bridge of, of God's grace, a means of redemption for the line of promise. We've tracked the line of promise from Adam to, to Noah. And here we'll continue to, to Abraham at the end of chapter 11 and then beyond. So Genesis 6, 9 and 10 read, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These three descriptions are powerfully positive, righteous, blameless, walked with God. So first, Noah is presented as, as righteous. Well, what does it mean that Noah was righteous? Well, some take it to mean that Noah found favor because he was righteous. But really, that's getting it backwards. Because verse 9 doesn't come before verse 8. 
Verse eight says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word that's translated favor in the ESV is, is the same word that's often translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, the, the King James and the New King James both render it grace. As James Boyce explains, it's not that Noah found grace because he was righteous. Noah's righteousness was the product of his having, it was the product of his having found favor, and it is therefore proof of that favor, not its ground. Okay, that the favor that, that Noah had received was, was grace. And so Noah's righteousness wasn't, wasn't because, or Noah, this grace wasn't because Noah was righteous, but Noah was righteous because of God's grace. Fellow Christian, Noah's righteousness was by grace through faith, just like yours. His life was characterized by habitual righteousness, which is also by grace, just like yours if you are truly saved. Noah is next described as being blameless in his generation. This doesn't mean that he was, was sinless, but that he was complete, that he was wholehearted. Co compared to those, no, to those around them, compared to all of those around, around him, Noah was morally pure. And this is, again, by grace. This is by God's grace. Next, it's Noah's described as walking with God. We, we've seen this description applied to Enoch. It points to communion, to fellowship, to obedience. And again, this was by grace. As we read in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We are all called to walk with God. And it's all by grace. And in Noah's case, and for ours, if, if we are truly recipients of God's grace, it comes through faith, which we see faith is repeated, repeatedly described in the scriptures as also being a gift of God. So grace comes through faith, and faith is also the gracious gift of God. It's, it's all of God's grace. Remember the description of Noah in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah being warned concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's righteousness was by faith. God's grace. And so Noah's character serves, serves as, as a call for us to, to righteousness and faith in wicked times. We, we too live in wicked times. And we too are called to, to have faith and, and to, to, to walk righteously. Throughout key times in, in history, God has called men and women to, to live faith and obedience for His glory. The apostles, the early church fathers, the reformers, the Marian martyrs, the Puritans, and maybe you. If you are called of God, then you are called to walk as a man and woman of righteousness in this wicked world. We're living in increasingly dark days, and so may God's light shine in and through us that much more brightly. 
Are you living like that in the world? Are you intentionally living like that in the world to be salt and light for the glory of God, intentionally being different from the wickedness that you see around you and increasing? Noah shone as, as a bright light of God's grace in his generation. May we, all of us, be a bright light in our generation for the glory of God. In verse 10, we see Noah's sons mentioned again, and, and they're mentioned repeatedly in Scripture, not only in, in this verse and in 532, but, but repeatedly in this narrative, and, and as we'll, we'll find out later on, with, with mixed reports. There's a, a, there's a mixed assessment of the, the sons of Noah. But the report of the rest of the earth is not so mixed. Contrasted with Noah's grace-endued righteousness is the earth's corruption, in verses 11 and 12. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In the creation account, we, we repeatedly see that God saw, and it was good. With the creation of, of man and woman, at the, the completion of the sixth day in, in creation, God, God saw that it was very good. But in this account here, God saw something different. God saw that it was very bad. It was very bad indeed. We've already seen a, a clear description of the extent of, of sin in 6.5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now there the, the key word is, is evil. And, and now that the key word is corrupt. It's used three times. God sees that it's evil. God sees that it's evil. And they corrupted... The, sorry, God sees that it's corrupt twice and then that God sees that they had corrupted themselves. Friends, this is willful disobedience. They corrupted themselves because they are corrupt. People sin because they are sinners. They are born sinners and so everything that they do is sinful. You understand that people, don't, people aren't sinners because they sin. People, people sin because they are sinful. They are born sinful. Everything they do is sinful. But that's not true just for them, not just for the people in Noah's day. It's true for all humanity apart from Christ. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2.3 The earth was filled with violence. Now, I think it's safe to say that the 20th century was the most, the most bloody in, in, in the... In, maybe not in human history, but, but at least since the flood. Somewhere around 150 million people were killed in war in the 20th century. 150 million people. Just think about that number for a second. That's five times the population of Canada. Now think about the number of babies who are killed by abortion and have been killed by abortion. It's just since 1980, 1 1.5 billion. 1.5 billion babies murdered just since 1980. That is 43 times the population of Canada. The earth is filled with violence. 
The world is at war with each other because the world is at war with God. And friends, violent times call for men and women of peace. For men and women of peace. Men and women like you. Peter refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness in, in 2 Peter 2.5. I wonder, are you a herald of righteousness? That the Lord has determined that you would live in this violent time in human history. And he has determined to make peace with you so that you can be an instrument of peace. Are you working as a peacemaker in these violent days? For those here who are Christians, for those who are, are at peace with God, are you at peace with those around you? If, if, the, if the, the, the war between you and God has been settled in Christ, are you at peace with those around you? The, the, the people in your life, and, and not just your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and not just the people who are easy to love, but are you at peace with your neighbor, with all of those around you? Are you spreading peace through your words and through example? Are you calling for peace for the unborn and for others who don't have a voice in the world? Are you calling and proclaiming peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? James 3.10 says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Noah by, by his example, and, and, and in some respect, we don't exactly know how, was a, was a herald of righteousness. And so in this, he's, he's an example for us. Hebrews presents him as, as an example. Again, not a perfect example. There's only one perfect example of, of righteousness and peace. But we are called to follow in the footsteps of Noah as Noah followed in the footsteps of Christ. It's hard to imagine, but it seems like the earth in Noah's day was even worse, at least proportionally worse than ours. Morrison and Whitcomb in their important book, The Genesis Flood, say it like this. Every statement seems calculated to impress upon its readers the idea of universal sin, not just the exceptional sins of this group or that region, nor even of specific times or occasions, but rather the sin of an entire age, an entire race that had utterly corrupted its way upon the earth was now ripe for the judgment from a holy God. And so in Noah's day, the battle raged even hotter, but by God's grace, Noah was at peace with God. But with that, with that statement, we, we don't hear any more about, about this, this pre-flood world that, that Noah lived in. They're silenced to a watery grave. Then with verses 13 to 22, we, we see the contrast between the Lord's condemnation and the Noahic covenant. The, the contrast between the Lord's condemnation of the entire world and, and, Noah, and the covenant that God makes with Noah. We read back in 6.5 that the Lord was grieved by what he saw and that he regretted making man. And though, though God does not change, he is personally affected and impacted by sin. So in verse 13, he tells Noah that he's going to deal with it. This is the, the first of four speeches by God in this Toledot. God speaks personally to Noah, telling him of the disaster he's going to bring down. 
Interestingly, we don't hear a word from Noah until 925, when Noah curses his son Ham, saying, Cursed be Canaan. But God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Humanity had destroyed the earth with their sin, and now God says he is going to use the earth to destroy them. Like we've seen again repeatedly, that the consequence fits the crime. Like Leviticus 18.25, that the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But this isn't just one country. This is the whole planet. God is going to destroy all flesh. He's going to kill every man, every woman, every child, every, every land animal, and every bird on the planet. Kenneth Matthews says, The Lord is not acting impulsively or selfishly, but in moral outrage against the reprehensible conduct of that generation. So we think about what God is going to do to the, the whole planet, but then we contrast this with God's gracious treatment of Noah in the Noahic covenant. Verses 14 to 22. So after telling Noah what he's going to do with the rest of the planet, he tells Noah what he's going to do with him. He tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. The word that's translated ark here doesn't refer to, to a boat. It's, it actually refers to a chest. It's actually the, the same uh, word that's, that's used to describe the, um, the, the chest that, that Moses' mother made for, for Moses to, to save him from the Egyptians. She makes that, that basket out of, out of reeds and, and puts him into the, into the Nile River. That's the same word. It's a chest, not, not a boat. It's, interestingly, it's not the same word that's used as the ark, for the Ark of the Covenant. That's a different word. But, but here we see that, that, that God is, is making this this commanding Noah to make this massive chest to, to spare Noah and, and those he chooses to, to spare with him. Nobody's really sure what, what gopher wood was, but it could be cypress, which is common in that area. But it's, only, area it's the only place that this word gopher wood is, is used. But Noah's told to put compartments in the ark to, to house its inhabitants and to coat it with pitch to make it watertight. Interestingly, Moses' ark was coated with pitch as well. And God tells Noah to, to make the ark 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. A cubit is, a, is about 18 inches, about, about a foot and a half. So this is a massive vessel, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It's the same length as a football field, not one of those dinky NFL football fields, like a CFL football field with a 110-yard playing field and the 20-yard end zones. That's a huge, huge boat. Now, I'm no shipwright, but it, hopefully Jack will be here next week. He's a, you might not realize this, but Jack is a retired shipwright, and he, he might be able to give you a lot more insights but, but apparently when British naval architects planned the battleship Dreadnought, they built it according to the, the same proportions as the Ark because they found that proportions of the Ark were scientifically perfect for a seagoing vessel. 
Now, this is, this is no accident. This is, this is, we're seeing even in the, the construction of the ark, we're seeing God's design. Noah was told to put a roof in it and a door in its side. And an important detail is going to emerge about the door, as we'll see next week. But, but as an aside, I want to make an important point here about Bible interpretation. Some theologians, and, and especially some of the early church fathers, used what was called an allegorical interpretation of Scripture in which every detail points to Christ and the cross. This was often fanciful and and often drifted very far from the original Holy Spirit-inspired human author's intent. So Augustine, now now don't get me wrong, there's many reasons to love Augustine. I I quoted his book, um, City of God, last week, but, but in that book, Augustine spoke of the ark as representing our sojourn in the world. And he spoke of the the wood of the ark as representing the cross and as as the door in the ark representing the the wound in Christ's side where the the soldiers thrust the spear through. This is is imagination. This is very far from from what the the, the Holy Spirit-inspired human author wanted us to understand and to interpret from this passage. But but anyway, this ark had a a deck area of over 100,000 square feet its volume would have been 1.4 million cubic feet with a displacement of about 43,000 tons this is a very very big boat but it had it had no wheel and it had no rubber it, no rudder it was essentially a, a floating barge d- designed to to ride out the flood with with no navigation Noah trusts the hand of God to guide it. And in verse 17, God tells Noah why he is to build the ark. He says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy it, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. A flood is coming, but this is no local flood. God is going to kill everyone. And, and not only every man, but also every land, animal, and every bird as well. The Lord sits enthroned upon the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. Psalm 29, 10. Remember the holiness of God. Remember the wickedness of man. Thus far, God had been patient. But the time had come for him to deal with sin. In his wise providence and righteous justice, he determined that now was the time for everyone and everything to die. But, but, says God in verse 18, when you you see the word but in your scripture, take note because something big is about to happen. Something pivotal is about to be said. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God said that he would establish his covenant with Noah. This is the first time in scripture that we see the word covenant. But it's not the first time we see a covenant. Remember, this word covenant is is extremely important in the Bible. It's used 337 times in the Bible, 52 times in Genesis alone. Covenants provide the architectural structure of the scriptures. They they point to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. God is a relational God, and the way that he deals with his people is through covenants. 
And covenant is, is essentially, as Ligon Duncan defines, a, a binding relationship with blessing and obligation. God's covenant with Noah is, is not the first covenant that God made with man. God made a covenant of works with Adam. Do this and you will live. Do not touch or do not eat the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil or you will die. R.C. Sproul explains that the covenant of works refers to the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in their pristine purity before the fall in which God promised them blessedness contingent upon their obedience to his command. But of course, Adam broke that covenant. But then immediately after the fall in Genesis 3, God institutes the covenant of grace with the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. But in the process, his heel would be bruised. This points to, to Jesus Christ who would defeat the world and sin and Satan for us on the cross. And, and we, we can see that because that's promised in, in Romans 16. That's not a, a fanciful interpretation. We read that the Lord had prom promised that he would soon crush Satan under your feet. So we have then that this covenant of works that, that God had made with, with Adam contrasted with the covenant that he made prior to the fall, with the covenant that he made with, with Adam after the fall, and that is made here with Noah, the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, God upholds both ends of the deal. Christ perfectly obeyed the covenant of works. And all the biblical covenants after the fall are manifestations of the covenant of grace expanding and escalating to the covenant in Christ's blood. As Spurgeon said, this covenant is made not with the worthy, but with the unworthy. A covenant not made upon conditions, but unconditionally. Every supposed covenant having been fulfill, fulfilled by our great representative and surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a covenant without an if or a but in it. So this covenant with Noah is part of the covenant of grace. And you can see from the, the text that this is not a, a new arrangement by the, the terminology. In Hebrew, the, the common language for, for entering a covenant is to cut a covenant. But we see in, in Genesis 15 that, there that, that, um, that God cut a covenant with Abraham. But here, in the, this covenant that God makes with, with Noah, it, it, the expression is, establish my covenant. Establish my covenant. It, it commonly means to, to confirm a pre-existing commitment. In other words, God was already, or God was confirming an already existing covenant, the covenant of grace that he had already made with Adam. And the focus here is God saying, I will establish my covenant with you, with Noah. Noah is the chosen recipient. With you is then repeated twice more. Noah here is, is particularly in view, but his family will benefit. And so God is destroying the seed of the serpent, but preserving the seed of the woman. He's preserving his chosen lineage. But we'll see very shortly that, that even within the, the lineage of, of Noah, that, that some of that seed is also really part of the seed of the serpent. And this covenant that God makes with, with Noah is promised here in chapter 6, but it is ratified and established in chapter 9. It promises Noah much more than, than mere survival. As Kidner explains, 
Noah goes into the ark not as a mere survivor, but as the bearer of God's promise for a new age. The bearer of God's promise for a new age. So in verses 19 to 21, God instructs Noah that animals will benefit as well. He is to take pairs of every kind of land animal, bird and creeping thing, into the ark to, to preserve them alive. Now these were preliminary instructions. More detail will, will be given about clean and unclean animals in, in chapter 7. But, but here initially it's, it's these pairs are, are meant to keep these, these kinds of animals alive. And food was then to be taken aboard the ark to keep them alive. And we might have expected more detailed instructions and information uh, about how Noah was, was to accomplish this and, and how long it was to take, but that's not the author's focus. He wants to focus on the faithfulness of Noah as God's chosen vessel. So in verse 22, we see a brief but revealing statement. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. But remember, don't... don't don't divorce this from its biblical context. Again, we read in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that this was by faith. By faith, Noah built the ark. Here, here we see a, another parallel with Moses, this time with the construction of the tabernacle and the, the Lord's response to, to Moses. And like, like Moses, Noah did it by faith. And in this, again, he provides a model for us. He shows us obedience and the efficacy of faith in God's word, in the truth of God's word. Noah had no, no external evidence of a coming flood. He, he simply took God at his word. He believed what God said he was going to do. He simply trusted and did what God commanded. We need to remember again that Noah is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of the story. God is the one who is working in and through Noah by his grace to enable Noah to do what he had to do. So Noah, as, as we're going to see, th though he obeys here, he, he does not obey perfectly. We're going to see before too long Noah's sin is, is exposed there for us. We need one who does obey perfectly. We need Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience. The human race came through Adam. The human race will be preserved through Noah. Like Adam, Noah points to Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Friends, there is a flood coming. There is a flood that is coming. It is not a flood of water. It is a flood of fire is the flood of the wrath of the holy God. The world in it and everything in it is going to be consumed. And if you are here this morning as an unbeliever, flee to Jesus Christ, your only refuge from the inferno. But for most of us here, those who are born again, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, those who are, are following him by his grace, take hope. Like Noah, God has chosen you to be a recipient of his grace. God has set his affections on you and he has promised to deliver you. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. Jesus Christ 
is your blamelessness. In Christ, like Noah, you too walk with God. Take hope that you will be delivered. God will be faithful to you just like he was faithful to Noah. You too will be preserved. Let's pray together. Faithful God, we marvel when we think about the wickedness that took place in the days of Noah. We marvel when we think about the wickedness that we see around us today. We marvel when we think about the, the wickedness that once characterized our lives. And we marvel when we think of the wickedness that still characterizes some. We marvel that, that you did not destroy everything and oblit obliterate absolutely everything and everyone. We marvel, Lord, that, that you had grace to save any. For, Lord, none deserve to be saved. But, Lord, again, your, we know that your grace is just as vast as your justice. Lord, we know that for those upon whom you have chosen to be recipients of your grace, you will pour out grace upon grace. Lord, you have given us faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to walk in that faith and obedience. We pray that, that as Noah was a stark contrast with the world around him, we pray that, that by your grace and for your glory, you would help us to be a stark contrast with the world around us. We pray this in the magnificent name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.